Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, rape, torture, and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sonoma County, California, sits nestled against the Pacific Ocean. Its loping hills and majestic mountains are covered with verdant greens and fertile soil. Vineyards merge seamlessly with spectacular forests, and when the sun sets, the area glows with a magical hue. Santa Rosa rises up from these picturesque scenes, a jewel of a city. Its blend of urban refinement, coupled with the peaceful surroundings of nature's splendor, make this city one of idyllic excellence. A person could hardly be blamed if they thought it was too good to be true. But if that person arrived in the city in the early 1970s, they would be right. Predators lurked within those woods. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders. This week, we'll cover the community's growing terror as five victims met their untimely ends. Next week, we'll cover the many different theories about these gruesome murders and who might be responsible. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. I'm Kathleen Goltar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat this story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Santa Rosa sits an hour's drive north of San Francisco. Its distance from the big city also meant a distance from its crime. With a population of 50,000 people in 1970, Santa Rosa saw only nine homicides the entire year. Almost all of those homicides were easily solved and few killers went unpunished. This made most of the city's residents feel quite safe within its bounds. Even San Francisco's notorious haunting by the Zodiac Killer did little to dampen the local spirits. The Zodiac and killers of his ilk were someone else's problem. As such, the young people of Santa Rosa spent much of their time hitchhiking all around. 
Little did they know the rush they felt by hopping into the vehicles of strangers would soon come to a screeching halt. Arlene Sterling stopped her car in front of the Redwood Empire Ice Arena around 7.30 p.m. on Friday, February 4th, 1972. She was dropping off her daughter, 12-year-old Maureen Sterling, and her daughter's best friend, 13-year-old Yvonne Weber. An evening skating at the rink was a regular Friday night for the young friends. The two spent a lot of time together. They even wore their hair in the same style, long, brown, and parted in the middle. They hopped out of the car and waved goodbye to Arlene. She reminded the girls to meet her back out front at 11 p.m. They agreed, and Arlene watched as they made their way into the ice rink. Arlene drove home, confident that night would be like any other. She spent her evening relaxing with her husband, and at 10.45, she hopped back into her car and returned to the ice rink. She parked near the front and watched for her daughter. Children and their parents left hand in hand, but as the minutes ticked away, Maureen and Yvonne were nowhere to be seen. Arlene's heart started to race. As any mother would, she likely entered the ice rink in search of her daughter. But the facility was about to close, and none of the employees had seen her little girl. Maureen and Yvonne had simply vanished. In a panic, Arlene sped to the police station and reported the girls missing. Officers started their search, and the story of the disappearance went out to the public. Soon enough, they got a tip. A man arrived at the police station, claiming he'd seen the girls the night they disappeared. Are you absolutely sure it was Maureen Sterling and Yvonne Weber? There's not a doubt in my mind. I was driving home when I saw two young girls, hair in exactly the same style as those photographs. It must have been 9 p.m. over on Guerneville Road. That's just around the corner from the ice rink. I know. They had their thumbs up. They tried to flag me down, but I didn't have time to give some kids a lift. But it looks like somebody else did. Arlene reported that the girls planned to skate at the ice rink that night, But this new lead suggested they had other plans. According to the San Francisco Examiner, Maureen and Yvonne often used the ice rink as a cover. After their parents dropped them off, the girls hitchhiked to a local park across town where other young people mingled without adult supervision. They would hitchhike back to the ice rink before their designated pickup time, and their parents were none the wiser. Since the street they were last seen on, Guerneville Road, led in the direction of the park, it seems likely they had intended to visit that park again that night. However, it should be noted that few other articles mention this explanation, so it should be taken with a grain of salt. Wherever the girls were headed, all we really know is that they were last seen at 9 p.m. on Guerneville Road, trying to get a lift. And now they were missing or perhaps even kidnapped. But at the same time, police came to a conclusion that seemed much less sinister, if not a bit insulting. Now, Mr. Harrington, there's something you need to understand. You see, it's not uncommon for children from broken homes to act out, and sometimes young children with step-parents want to seek a better life, one with a little more adventure. It's likely that's the case with Yvonne and she'll find her own way home eventually, just like all the others. Good day now. 
Yvonne's parents were furious with the police. They didn't believe for a second that she was a runaway. Something awful had happened to her and Maureen. But the police were unconcerned. They kept the girls' missing persons reports open. But their attention went towards other crimes. Most people in town wrote the girls off as runaways, too. That was all too common in the early 1970s. But they were all wrong. A gruesome tragedy waited in the wings. Yvonne and Maureen's disappearance was the start of one of the bloodiest stories in Santa Rosa history. Evil stalked the Santa Rosa streets, and the public was too blind to notice. Most people in Santa Rosa returned to life as normal. Young women all throughout Sonoma County continued hitchhiking, even if they were warned not to. This included a 19-year-old art student at Santa Rosa Junior College named Kim Allen. Kim often hitchhiked to and from classes, as well as her part-time job at Larkspur Health Foods. The small grocery store was about 42 miles south of her house in Santa Rosa, where she lived with several of her friends. Her parents and her teachers all warned her about the dangers of hitchhiking, but she refused to listen. She had a cheery, optimistic spirit and tried to focus on the good in people. It was an endearing quality, but one that likely got her into trouble. At 5 p.m. on March 4, 1972, exactly one month after Maureen Sterling and Yvonne Weber disappeared, Kim Allen left work with a bright orange backpack on her back and a barrel of soy sauce in her arms. She stuck her thumb up, looking for a ride. Two men stopped and offered to give her a lift. They said they could take her three miles up the road, a far cry from the 42 she needed to travel to get home. She thought it was better than nothing and hopped in. The three of them had a pleasant conversation before the ride was over. The men had been true to their word. After three miles of driving, they dropped Kim off at a northbound on-ramp for Highway 101. They left her with her thumb up on the side of the road around 5.30 p.m. When Kim never arrived home that night, her roommates grew worried. They went to the police station. I think something awful has happened to my roommate, and you need to look for her. Here, I brought a photo. That should help you find her, right? Is this a recent picture? Was she wearing her hair like this today? Yes, she loves that hairstyle. Okay. All units, keep an eye out for a 19-year-old woman named Kim Allen. She has long brown hair parted down the middle, never arrived home. We'll let you know if we find anything. The next afternoon, March 5th, 1972, two high school boys went joyriding on their motorcycles down the side streets of Sonoma County. Around 2 p.m., they pulled over on the side of Enterprise Road, taking in the scenery. They stood at the top of a steep embankment about eight miles southeast of Santa Rosa. The ground dropped off 20 feet below them before it reached a peaceful creek that trickled through the forest. Yet as they looked, their eyes caught on something pale and white resting on the ground. At first, they thought it was a mannequin, but on closer inspection, they realized they were looking at the naked body of a young woman with long brown hair. The boys raced to the nearest police station, sounding the alarm. Officers arrived at the crime scene and roped off the area. As they approached the body, they noticed several horrifying details. 
Her body was covered in scratches, implying that she had been thrown down the hill. Her wrists and ankles had binding marks, indicating that she had been tied up, and her throat had strangulation marks, her cause of death. Police immediately compared the woman to the photo the concerned roommates had brought in the night before. It was a match. They had found Kim Allen, and her fate had been brutal. Coming up, Kim Allen's autopsy reveals even darker truths. We all have grief and traumas in our life, but that doesn't mean they have to control us. Hi, I'm David Kessler, host of Healing with David Kessler. For most of us, our instinct is to hide our pain and never discuss it. But as a grief and loss expert, I'm here to tell you, without a doubt, that talking is healing. Anger, abuse, guilt, shame, they're all part of grief and trauma. Healing with David Kessler gets to the root of these issues, shares tips for persevering, and reveals that behind every dark emotion lies wisdom and hope. Loss and trauma may seem overwhelming, but healing is possible, and I'm here to help. Healing with David Kessler is a Spotify original from Parcast. Hear a new episode every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. And now, back to our story. On March 5th, 1972, 19-year-old Kim Allen was found murdered and discarded at the bottom of an embankment. Her autopsy painted a disturbing picture of her final hours. Kim had likely died around midnight on March 5th, 12 hours before she had been found. Rope marks on her wrists and ankles indicated that she had been tied up in a spread-eagle position. The presence of semen on her body meant that she had been tortured and raped, likely as she was being killed. She had been asphyxiated to death with a rope, and it had probably taken a torturous 30 minutes for her to die. The crime was absolutely horrific. The police jumped into action. Sonoma County Sheriff Don Strepek assigned 10 detectives to the case, almost his entire detective bureau, to trace the killer. I want every single one of you out there pounding the pavement looking for clues. Get a picture to the papers. Get her name out there. We need any names, dates, and places we can find to figure out who took that girl's life. Now get a move on! After news of Kim's murder went public, two men came forward. They told police they had given her a lift from her work, but had left her at the on-ramp at 5.30 p.m., Police verified their alibis and the two men were cleared from the suspect list. They were confirmed to be the last people to see Kim Allen alive. Police hoped more tips would come in to help their investigation along, but they got more than they had ever expected. Several women and girls from Sonoma County called in to report that they had been victims of rape after hitchhiking with strangers. They had been too scared to come forward earlier, 
But after hearing about Kim's murder, they hoped their stories could help catch the killer. Unfortunately, they were far from alone. To give insight into this ongoing issue, the officer later told the press that over the course of the last year, there had been over 100 reports of rape in Sonoma County, and around 80% of them had occurred while the victim was hitchhiking. The sheer volume of the problem was more awful than most people had ever imagined. And to make matters worse, most of the reported rapists were nearly impossible to track. Given the itinerant nature of hitchhiking, the violent criminals were often far out of the county long before their crimes could ever be reported. The detectives now had a few leads they could follow, but chasing leads takes time and the dark presence that prowled Santa Rosa's streets would use that time to strike again. On April 25th, 1972, only a little over a month after Kim Allen's murder, another woman made her way to the side of the road. Just like Kim, 20-year-old Jeanette Kamaheli was a student at Santa Rosa Junior College who often hitchhiked to and from classes. On the morning of the 25th, she stood at an on-ramp to Highway 101, her thumb out and her long brown hair parted in the middle. One of her friends saw her trying to hitch a ride. He tried to pick her up himself, but before he could get to the curb, another vehicle stopped in front of him. The driver was a white man in his 20s or 30s with brown hair in an Afro hairstyle. The friend saw Jeanette step into the truck. That night, Jeanette did not return home. Her roommate called her professors and discovered that Jeanette had not made it to any of her classes. Jeanette was a dedicated student, and she never would have missed class without letting her professors know about it beforehand. Something was seriously wrong. Her roommate reported her missing. Police made her disappearance public news, asking for any information. Jeanette's friend came forward to describe the truck he saw her climb into, a brown Chevy from the 1950s, with a homemade wooden camper resting in its bed. Even though the truck was quite distinct, the police weren't able to track it down. Jeanette's friend hadn't gotten the license plate, so the truck could have belonged to anyone and gone anywhere. The police searched for Jeanette for months, but the trail went cold. Ultimately, Jeanette would never be seen again. Around this time, women on the nearby Sonoma State College campus, just nine miles away from Jeanette's junior college, decided to organize a carpool service to protect themselves. They also petitioned the government to improve public transit so hitchhiking would no longer be as necessary. Yet, even as they tried to take action, some people called these women paranoid. Others threatened them for coming out about their bad experiences, and still some residents of Santa Rosa lived their lives without ever hearing about the dangers hitchhiking presented. This blasé attitude fostered the perfect environment for villains to take advantage of vulnerable people. Whoever was stalking their streets would still have plenty of opportunities to cause pain, and Santa Rosa's young women were going to suffer the consequences Unfortunately, 13-year-old Lori Lee Cursa was one of these victims. Lori was raised by her mother, Lorraine Cursa, and they lived in Santa Rosa together. 
The home atmosphere was often tense as Lori was going through a teen angst phase. Lori had a bad habit of running away from home. She would abandon her mother and hitchhike to various friends' homes where she would stay for days before returning to her mother. On November 11, 1972, the tension between Lori and her mother had reached another boiling point. The two went shopping at the local U-Save grocery store, and when Lorraine wasn't looking, Lori slipped away. The 13-year-old girl ran to the street outside, stuck out her thumb, and hitched a ride as quickly as she could. By the time Lorraine noticed she had gone, Lori was nowhere to be seen. Lorraine had been through this several times before. She did exactly what she knew she needed to do. She went to the police. Excuse me, deputy. I'd like to file a missing persons report. Oh, Miss Cursa. Lori, run off again? Yes. She's just so stubborn. I, I don't know what to do with that girl. I'm sure you're doing the best you can. If we see her, we'll send her right home, okay? Thank you. I'm sorry this keeps happening. That's quite all right. We're happy to help when we can. The police kept their eyes open for Lori, but it's probably safe to assume that she was a low priority for them. She had returned on her own accord several times already. They likely assumed she'd find her way home in a few days and everything would be back to normal. Unfortunately, that couldn't have been further from the case. A tense but normal situation was about to turn into a waking nightmare. On December 14, 1972, a little over a month after Lori Lee Cursa disappeared, a couple was taking a leisurely stroll down Calistoga Road. The road stretched out in the countryside to the northeast of Santa Rosa. A bitter winter cold had struck the area, so the normally verdant green of grass and trees was replaced with the seasonal hues of tan and brown. Naked tree branches stretched up to the sky like skeletal hands escaping from the grave. But at 3.30 p.m. that day, there was no escape for one young girl. As the couple stood at the top of a 30-foot-tall embankment, they took in the view. There on the ground, splayed out beside a tree trunk, they saw a girl's nude body. Her hair was long, brown, and parted down the middle. The couple informed the police, and the sheriff's department arrived later that day. Poor girl's frozen solid. She must have been out here for weeks. You think she was dumped here? Seems likely. Doesn't look like she suffered many injuries, though. I guess we'll have to let her thaw to know for sure. Yep. Times like these, I don't envy the coroner's job at all. An autopsy was performed on the girl's body shortly after its discovery. Interestingly, the coroner discovered that the girl had only suffered one injury, a broken neck. The girl had not been raped or physically assaulted, yet she had been found nude at the bottom of a steep embankment. The police speculated that after being abducted while hitchhiking and stripped by her captor, the girl had jumped out of a moving vehicle before anything worse could happen to her. Unfortunately, the jump and the fall cost her her life. She likely snapped her neck on the way down. Whoever had taken her 
simply drove away. While her cause of death could only be speculated, her identity could be discovered relatively easily. By matching the body's teeth with local dental records, the sheriff's office was able to identify the girl as 13-year-old Lori Lee Cursa. The runaway would never come home again. Next, the investigation into Lori Lee Curse's death. And now, back to our story. Lori Lee Cursa was found dead at the bottom of a steep embankment just outside Santa Rosa on December 14, 1972. The police immediately set to work tracing her whereabouts prior to her death. Her body had been frozen solid, so the coroner was unable to pin down a specific time of death. However, she'd probably died about a week before her body was discovered, sometime between December 1st and December 8th. The police put out a public plea, asking anybody who knew anything about her disappearance to come forward. They established a $500 reward for any information that could lead to the capture of Lori's potential kidnapper. They even went so far as to establish a complicated secret witness program for anonymous tips. If somebody was too scared to call but wanted the reward money, they could write their tip down on a piece of paper and sign it with a numerical code of their own invention. If the tip led to the capture of the killer, the anonymous tipster could then contact the sheriff's department and repeat the code. This would confirm that they had given the tip after all. It's not clear if this system was ever used. Either way, the police got plenty of information from willing tipsters. Several of Lori's friends came forward to tell the police what they knew. In fact, after running away from her mother on November 11th, Lori had spent the next 10 days bouncing from one friend's house to another. She had last been seen on November 30th, having fun with a group of her friends. There's a chance, however, she had been seen one other time before her death. Sheriff speaking. I heard you've got a tip for me. Yeah, it was about that Cursa girl. The one who broke her neck. I think I saw her when I was driving home down Calistoga Road someday in early December. Okay, and which day was that? I'm not sure, but it was definitely the first week of December. Anyway, I was driving north toward the corner of Calistoga and Parkhurst Drive when I see this van parked on the side of the road. Do you have the make and model? Looked like a Ford. It was white. Not sure about the model or year. And it looked like it had been in an accident. The driver's side door was completely a different color. Gray, I think, but it was hard to tell at night. Either way, it was a different color, and it looked all dented up. So you saw a dented van on Calistoga? And the driver was a white man with an Afro hairstyle? An Afro hairstyle. You sure about that? That's right. And there were two more men in the street with a, a young girl between them. Almost looked like they were carrying her. When I turned onto Parkhurst, they rushed across the intersection, pushed the girl into the van's back doors, and hopped in behind her. The van headed north, towards where the body was found. Why did you wait so long to tell us about this? Well... I didn't think much of it at the time, if I'm being honest, but I just saw the girl's picture in the paper. Long, brown hair parted in the middle, and I thought, wow, that's the girl in the van. Really makes me wish I'd done something about it. 
I know the feeling. The sheriff's office immediately got to work searching for the van and the perpetrator. Both Jeanette Kamaheli and Lori Lee Cursa had been seen getting into a car with a white man with a brown Afro hairstyle. To make matters worse, the similarities between Jeanette and Lori, their long brown hair, and the circumstances of their disappearances were too grim to ignore. Something was rotten in Santa Rosa. However, each tip had the man driving a different vehicle, and neither witness had gotten a license plate number. Without that, the models or the years, the search proved to be difficult. Police had to make the description public in the hopes that someone who had seen the van would tell them where it was. While public descriptions can be helpful, they can also harm a case. If a criminal sees their vehicle described in the press, they can get rid of it before anyone has a chance to see it. The move was a gamble. The sheriff's department spent two weeks hoping it would pay off, but instead of a tip, the next call they got was far darker. Sheriff, we got something out here that I think you're going to want to see. Did you find the van? No, something much worse. A couple of high schoolers were hiking in the woods just off Franz Valley Road. They were climbing the embankment up to their car when they noticed. They found two human skulls. Oh my. I'll be right there. On the evening of December 28, 1972, the sheriff's department was called to the scene of a gruesome discovery. Two human skulls laid at the bottom of a 30-foot embankment. The skeletons were small and female. They had clearly been exposed to the elements for quite some time. The flesh was almost completely stripped from their bones, which had been bleached white. Apart from the bones, a few clumps of long brown hair were all that remained. As the sun had already set, the sheriff's department decided to conduct a more thorough search in the daylight. They roped off the crime scene, posted a guard, and waited for morning. They returned on the 29th, metal detectors in hand. They scanned the area all around the skeletons when suddenly the metal detector went off. The undersheriff reached down to find a necklace chain with a golden cross attached. The cross had a distinct basket weave design and 14K written on the bottom. Metal detectors also discovered a small earring with a circular brass center lace-like filigree, and orange beads. These pieces of jewelry were quite distinct, but they were the only personal belongings found at the scene. It appeared the bodies had been nude when they were dumped at the site. The bones were collected and sent to a pathologist for closer examination. In the meantime, Sheriff Strepek and his undersheriff took the jewelry and cross-examined every missing persons report they had to determine if they could make a match. Here. She was wearing brass earrings, lace filigree, and... Blast it! No orange beads! How about this one? Gold cross? Ah, silver chain. Not our girl. (sighs) You think we could take a quick nap break? This is going to take a while. Yeah, you go ahead. I'm not stopping until we find a match. While the sheriff poured through the missing persons reports, a forensic pathologist analyzed the bones. 
The pathologists determined the victims had died at least six months before they'd been discovered. Unfortunately, the pathologist was unable to uncover any other useful information. After all, it was impossible to reveal the cause of death when all the flesh had already rotted away. Luckily, the teeth were still intact on both skulls, so a dentist was called in to examine them. And eventually, they found a match. It was 12-year-old Maureen Sterling and 13-year-old Yvonne Weber. They'd been missing for 10 months, and now their families were informed of their daughter's tragic fate. Some publicly admitted their disappointment with the sheriff's department. Yvonne's stepfather had claimed that during the girl's entire disappearance, the police had treated them as runaways. He told the press, It is obvious they weren't. I hope other girls will learn by this and not hitchhike. Now, the best the sheriff's department could do was try and find the girls' killers. Unfortunately for them, the discovery of their bodies revealed they had a much deeper, more serious problem on their hands. Four young women's bodies had been found, completely nude, tossed down embankments on the side of the road. All of the victims had been girls or young women with long brown hair parted in the middle. All of them had last been seen hitchhiking. A fifth victim with long brown hair had also disappeared while hitchhiking, and all of this had happened in the past year. The Santa Rosa Sheriff's Department wasn't dealing with a couple of isolated incidents. They were dealing with a serial killer. And if tipsters were to be believed, he had access to multiple vehicles, and he had help. Somewhere in Sonoma County, monsters prowled the streets, and their crime spree was far from over. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders. For more information on the Santa Rosa Hitchhiker Murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found Unsolved Child Murders by Emily G. Thompson and SantaRosaHitchhikerMurders.com, run by Deborah Silva, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Giles Hofseth, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Cameron Nicod, and Nazee Tarsha. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm David Kessler, host of Healing with David Kessler. As an expert on grief and loss, I know 
that healing doesn't mean forgetting or getting over the trauma. It means that the trauma no longer controls you. Join me each week for insights on how to find peace and learn how it's possible to persevere through anything. Healing with David Kessler is a Spotify original from Parcast. Listen every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify.